right. We are in 1 John. If you have your Bibles and you'll turn there. It's really good to see everyone here tonight. And for those that are watching online, we're glad you can participate. I would encourage you uh, to make your way back down here on Wednesday nights and be here in person if you're, if you're able to. Uh, so we can fill this place a little bit more. Uh, and just a reminder to those that are at home, after we're done on Wednesday nights with the study time, we have a, a time of Q&A afterwards where um, we uh, try to answer people's questions and we have some discussions, whether it's about our Bible reading project or about the study uh, that we're in in 1 John. Uh, it's been a really good time of fellowship uh, with one another and uh, answering questions. So if you've been missing out on that because you're at home, I would encourage you to come and join us if you're able to do so. We would love to have you come be here in person on Wednesday nights. Um, so uh, this week we'll be finishing up chapter 2 in 1 John. And I really had the goal of getting into chapter 3 uh, because uh, it's totally connected. But <clears throat> I'm not optimistic that we're going to get into chapter 3. So there's a, there's a lot here in these last two verses of chapter 2. Um, and so we'll, we'll get as far as we can there. Um, but the good thing is we have next week. We can come back and we can continue right where we left off uh, in, in the Word of God and continue to see what he has for us there. Uh, last week we looked at John's, um, not his final words on the subject of Antichrist, but his final words in chapter 2 on the subject of Antichrist, uh, plural, Antichrist's plural, that are already in the world and his warning uh, to not be deceived by them. Again, he wasn't talking per se about the Antichrist that is to come. Even back then in his day when he was writing this, he was talking about those who are already in the world, who are a part of uh, Satan's system, a part of his world, and doing his work. They're already there. And not to be deceived by them, because we should make no mistake, that is the goal of the Antichrist, to deceive people. Uh, probably most powerfully by the deception that a person is a Christian when they really aren't a Christian. Um, I don't know if I can think of anything more damning than that, to go through your life believing you're a Christian and then to stand before God and to be told, depart from me, I never knew you. Um, that is a deception, um, a great deception. But again, John reminded us of the powerful promises for true Christians to rely upon, uh, that the Holy One, Jesus Christ, has anointed every Christian, and that anointing is the indwelling uh, presence of the Holy Spirit. Um, what a gift that is, what a promise that is, and that that Holy Spirit teaches every believer, okay, he teaches us everything that is true, everything from the Word of God, God teaches us through His Spirit. And not only those promises, but also that as we're, he's told us over and over again to abide, right? Abide in the truth. And the Holy Spirit teaches us and reminds us also to abide, okay? And we'll see more on that topic as we get into um, the next verse. And also what we'll see tonight and, and next week as we get into chapter 3, um, as we continue in this letter, is an overarching theme of hope um, from John towards true Christians, that as Christians read the words of God here, uh, written through John, 
that we would be encouraged, that we would have hope in our Savior. We'll see words like confidence and righteousness and hope itself. Phrases like when he appears and at his coming, and you may be sure and born of him and what kind of love the Father has for us. And phrases like called the children of God and we are God's children now. We shall be like him. Okay, we shall see him as he is. As a Christian, none of those are fearful things. None of those are things that we, we run from or hide from. They are things to look forward to as Christians. Um, and so I, I, I we'll see those as we go through these next couple verses and, and next week as we get into chapter 3. Um, so these few verses are filled with hope, filled with hope for you and I as Christians. And of course, that is what John is after. He wants the Christians not to be deceived by lies from the world, lies from the Antichrists, uh, but to be encouraged in the hope of being in Christ. And it's a, a repeated theme over and over again in this letter, as is the repeated theme of the, the contrast between true believers and false believers. So let's begin tonight by reading out our text. And I want to read the last two verses of chapter 2 and go ahead and read into the first three verses of chapter 3 just for the overall context there. So 1 John chapter 2, starting verse 28 through chapter 3, verse 3. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to be together here tonight, Lord, to enjoy the fellowship of believers, to enjoy the fellowship of singing praises to you, as we sang earlier about Christ as our sure and steady anchor. What an amazing amazing truth that is. We pray, Father, tonight for our time in your word that you would open our hearts and our minds to receive what is true as your Holy Spirit teaches us. And we thank you for the gift of your word, Lord, that you have guarded and protected for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years and that you will always protect, Father. And we thank you for that. What a gift that is. Lord, may we trust in your word. May we trust in what you have said. Most importantly, Lord, that may we trust what you have said as it relates to your Son and the salvation that we have received through faith in him. We thank you and praise you in his name. Amen. Okay. So, here as we get into verse 29, John again refers to the believers here as um, little children. And if you remember, that's a term of affection. It's not a, a cut down or a, a slight on them in any way. Um, it's, it's a term of affection and a statement 
really, about the fact that they are, that he's writing to believers, okay? Um, and we'll look in more detail at what, what it means to be children of God as we get into the next chapter. But here in verse 28, John repeats the idea of abiding again. Okay, we've, we've seen that word already, and as we've been going through this book, um, he's already used that term in this letter. He's very fond of the, the terminology uh, of abiding, um, and he, even in his gospel account, um, he uses that word quite often. And again, what that means is it has the idea of, of staying, of to stay or to remain in something or in someone. Um, and he's repeating what he had actually just said in the last verse. Uh, as you were here last week, we would have seen that, that the Spirit of God, he said, abides in you as Christians, and that same Spirit has taught them to abide in him. Okay, John is writing here about the, the characteristics of a true believer and that they are marked, true believers are marked by abiding and without abiding in Christ, a person uh, is proven to not be a Christian. Okay, this has been another theme of this letter, the, the distinctions between true and false Christians. And some people may find the thought of people believing they're able to tell if someone is a Christian or not as a sign of arrogance or elitism. But uh, this is a biblical theme. It's, it's John's teaching on this subject uh, is not new, and in fact, um, we can look back at, at things Jesus said and see that, that he says similar things in his own teachings. Jesus himself said we can know um, and made it even more glaringly clear by way of an analogy. Now, this is exactly what Jesus meant when he uh, compared being a true Christian with being branches on a vine. Okay, in John 15, uh, 4 and 5, he said, abide, there's that word again, is Jesus, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. And apart from me, you can do how much? Nothing, right? If you were to jump down to verse 8 in that passage, Jesus clarifies his point even more. John 15, 8, Jesus said, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Okay, John wants them to abide in Christ because it is proof of their salvation, proof of Christianity, and that is um, that's important, is it not, to know that? That a person should know if they are in Christ or not? Why is that important? Well, look at what um, John says next in our, in our passage. So that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. First of all, of course, we notice the fact that this is about Jesus and the truth statement made twice by John here that Jesus is what? Twice he mentioned it in that verse. Jesus will return. Yes, yes. Okay, he is he is appearing. He's coming. Uh, that kind of language. And and Jesus has promised to return for his church. The people have been taught that he's returning. They are expecting that he's returning. 
Okay, John doesn't, doesn't have to teach or explain that doctrine fully here. It's assumed that they know it and believe it to be true already. He, so he's, he's mentioning that truth, but he doesn't land there and go into that a whole lot. What he's relating to, to it is um, that they need to have confidence when he comes. He is coming, and they know that to be true. But what he wants about them when Christ comes is that they should have confidence. Okay? Along with producing fruit to remain in or abide in Christ until he comes, um, it proves that a person's profession of faith was true. You were an unbelieving enemy of Christ prior to salvation, but now have been reconciled to him through his body of flesh by his death, so that he, Christ, can present you blameless and above reproach when he returns. That is, if a person abides, if a person remains, if a person continues in the faith. As Paul said, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Colossians 1.23. This is the idea of Christian perseverance. Okay? A Christian will prove to be so if they remain, unlike the Antichrists that we've been talking about who will depart. Right? They'll, they'll leave. And Look with me again at Jesus' words, if you turn into your Bibles to Matthew 24. Matthew chapter 24. I'll get there one of these days. Matthew chapter 24, verses 9 through 13. Okay, and look, look at what he says regarding the end times and false professions of faith and the persecutions that will be coming. Okay, Matthew 24, 9 through 13. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness <clears throat> will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Okay? This is Jesus talking. He, he said, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So question, is this verse saying that you will be saved because you endured all these things? No. What is he saying? He's not saying you're saved because you were able to do something. Okay. It's... It's proof, right? That enduring to the end is proof that um, you are a Christian. One that is already truly saved can and will endure to the end. It's not without difficulty. It's not without hardship. Um, but it is proof. Okay? They are not saved by enduring to the, to the end. They are enduring to the end because they're saved. John says Christians can have confidence and the, as we look at the, uh, back in our passage in 1 John, he says Christians can have confidence. And, and the Greek word there has the meaning of outspokenness or freedom of speech. Not freedom of speech like, like, like you may be thinking about right here in our 
American terms of thinking. And it's also not an arrogance of speech, but it is a, a confidence based on truth. Not a confidence because of our own deeds or merit, but because of the deeds and merit of Jesus Christ. That's what gives us confidence. And this confidence makes it so we do not need to shrink from Christ when he returns. There's no need to shrink. The Bible talks about this kind of confidence in other places. And it is always, this kind of confidence is always in and because of Jesus Christ and what he's done. Never in our own abilities. Um, the writer of Hebrews says, we can approach the throne of God in confidence. In Hebrews 4.16 says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. On what basis can we do that? On what basis can we approach the throne of God in confidence? Through Jesus, right? On, on the basis of Christ and his work. When he said, let us then with confidence draw near, it's not an arrogant confidence, it's not a confidence because, hey, you did this or that, so now you can approach God in confidence. The writer of Hebrews is indicating that the confidence comes because of the truth that he had already explained in the verses prior to Hebrews 4.16. The, the then is only a reality because of the truth already understood. That truth is that Jesus, our great high priest, who passed through the heavens and withstood all the temptations that we do, yet without sin, right? He lived a righteous, sinless life for us. We, we could not do it. Christ did that. He did it for us in order to give it to us by faith. <clears throat> that we would be clothed in the righteousness of Christ through repentance and faith in him. That's where this confidence comes from. That's why we can have confidence to approach. Um, the confidence is in Jesus and his life and his death and his resurrection on our behalf. The Jews being written to there in Hebrews, uh, they never had confidence to approach the throne of God. You know, they, they couldn't go into the Holy of Holies. They had to go through the high priest who could only go in there once a year. And, and even that high priest had to fear coming before God, right? Because he was also unclean. He could ceremonially, well, that's a hard word, <clears throat> ceremonially do things uh, to prepare himself for that. But there was always this fear of doing what was wrong and not, not being ready for it. Um, but Jesus, on the other hand, Jesus cleared the way for us to approach God in confidence uh, because of his sacrifice of himself once for all. And that passage, when it talks about Christ becoming our great high priest, that's what it is. He's replacing all those earthly priests. All that whole sacrificial system is gone because of Christ and what Christ did uh, in sacrificing himself. He became that great high priest. It opened up the way for us to be able to, in confidence, approach the throne of God because of Christ. That's what gave confidence. This knowledge of Christ, being in Christ, and what Christ has done the knowledge that we can trust Christ to do the things that he has promised. And we have examples of this, this kind of confidence in, in God in the scriptures, like uh, in David and Goliath, right? The Philistines, who did they put forth? 
Goliath, right? Yeah. So they, the Philistines had a, they had confidence in Goliath. It ends up being a false confidence. They stood yelling and cursing at the Israelites, and they trusted in Goliath, right? When David killed Goliath, what did they do? They ran, okay? Everything changed all of a sudden. They, they fled in fear and in shame. But David, if you look at David, David had confidence. Both David and Goliath had confidence. The Philistines had confidence in Goliath. David had confidence, but who was his confidence in? In God, right? He had the kind of confidence that, that John is talking about here. David knew from experience that the Lord was able and would deliver him. You know, he had killed bears and lions, uh, and he talks about that in, that in that chapter, but he doesn't give himself the glory for doing that. He gives the glory to God. It was only in God's strength that, that he was able to do that. And so he didn't have confidence in himself, but in the Lord of hosts. And he approached Goliath in that confidence. Okay? And God indeed delivered. Right? So that's the kind of confidence that we're talking about. The question, what is, what is John implying when he says in, in our verse there, uh, he talks about not shrinking. What is he implying when he says, and not shrink from him in shame? What does yours say? Yeah. Yeah, we're in 28 right there. Okay. Does anybody else say shrink? <laughs> you guys have the wrong translation. <laughs> well, it's the same idea, right? There's... Um, the idea is, uh, again, of shame. The, the focus there is on shame. Um, and that, but he's implying something when he says, you know, that they would not have shame because of this confidence. The implication is that there are those who have a reason to shrink in shame. There are those who have a reason to be ashamed when he comes, okay, when he returns. There are those who will not be cleansed by the blood of Christ. Right, they'll, they'll still be in their sins. Some, obviously, having to deal with Christ when he t- returns, and they've never made a profession of faith in Christ. They never claimed to have anything to do with him or want to have anything to do with him. But then there are those who will have spent their life believing that they're Christians, believing that they were doing God's work, and they were not. They will have reason to shrink in shame. Okay? They're not seen in Christ's righteous robes. They have not had his righteousness imputed to them. These who shrink are the ones Jesus talked about in his, in his parable of the sower of seeds. Right, Matthew 13, 20 through 22. He said, as for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. These are unbelievers. They even heard the word. Even going beyond that, they would have thought they were a part of this. They they would have thought they were a part of Christ. But when life happens... Uh, they prove themselves to not be uh, one of his. 
they fall away. But the Christian can have confidence. The Christian can have hope. Looking forward to his coming. Again, his coming, his return is not something that Christians uh, fear or dread. I mean, we are, we are wanting it. We are wanting him to come. We are looking forward to him coming. Um, because we know what that means. Right? We're, we're done with this world. We get to go and be with our Savior forever. Um, look with me, if you would, at 2 Corinthians Second Corinthians chapter five. This gives a good idea for how the Christian views these things, how the Christian thinks about the coming of Christ. Second uh, Corinthians five, six through ten. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And the idea here is um, that we can be of good courage at the thought of Christ returning. It is not a fearful thing. Um, and we don't shrink back. Um, and I can't think of much more encouraging than knowing, first of all, that our Lord is returning, that our Lord will bring us home, and that we don't have to fear that, but yet it's something to look forward to. But there are those who should and will fear that, and it will not be a good situation for them. And that should motivate us. It should motivate us to, to share the gospel with others. It should motivate us to, uh, to preach the good news to people of Christ so that they too can have confidence. They too can look forward to his return, not in fear or in shame, but with joy and, and with confidence. Titus 2, 11 through 14 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Those are good things. Those are encouraging things as we, as we think about. And John is emphasizing his points with the next verse when he talks about knowledge. In verse 29 in our passage, it says, if, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. And your translation here might have the word know here twice uh, in that verse. Mine has no, and then you may be sure. And John did use two different words there in that, in that verse. He used two different words that are translated as no. Um, the first one means, or has the meaning of perceiving an absolute truth. That kind of knowledge that, that you perceive this is an absolute truth. 
And the second use means to know by experience or to recognize something or to come to perceive something. And that's where, that's where my version uses um, you may be sure instead of no in that, in that second usage there. John is getting at there uh, is that a Christian knows the absolute truth about God. That, that God himself is the utter definition and complete, absolutely righteous one. There's no, you look up righteous in the dictionary, it should have God. It should talk about God and all of his attributes. But he is righteous, perfectly righteous. And if you know that about God, you may know for sure then by experience the next thing. That only those who are truly born of him can practice or walk in righteousness. Again, more proof about true conversion or false conversion. And what does John mean by born of him? What, or what does some of the other translations say? Anything say other thing different from born of him? And what does he mean by that? What was that? Born again, absolutely, right? A Christian, a born-again believer, right? Um, that's, what he's, that's what he's referring to there when he talks about being born of him. In Luke 6, 43 and 44, Jesus said, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor, again, does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. Okay, these are kind of obvious things, obvious examples he's using here. Everyone who practices righteousness, that John is writing about there, these are those whose pattern of life resembles that of their creator, resembles that of their savior. The way they live identifies them as belonging to him, belonging to a particular family. Uh, there's, there's evidence. You know, if you see someone walk into a room, you see someone there with orange dust all over their face and caked on their fingers, you know, my first thought is Cheetos, right? I, uh, I'll recognize them as having gotten into a bag of Cheetos, right? The evidence is right there. They can't hide it. It's on their face. It's on their fingers. These are things that give evidence that of something. And in the same way with people, these things, um, this pattern of walking in righteousness gives evidence of belonging to or participating in or having been with Jesus. And we, have, we really have a great example of this in the Bible. When we look at the apostles in Acts chapter 4, they, they so resembled and produced fruit like Jesus that the scripture says they were identified as having been with him. Peter and John, they were, they're healing, they're speaking boldly, um, as they as they preached the gospel, and the religious leaders hated it, right? They they but they couldn't deny what they were doing. They couldn't deny a miracle that was right before their eyes that the people saw uh, this healing. They couldn't they couldn't deny that. They didn't know what to do. Okay, they set them down in the middle of the council and they questioned questioned them, and they answered them in boldness and authority, as the scripture says in Acts four thirteen. Um, here's what the outcome of that is. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, 
and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. They, they knew Jesus, these religious leaders. They, they knew him. They recognized these men as having been with him. They compared them to what they knew of Jesus, even though they were not believers. And they knew this, is, this was the behavior of Jesus. This is the things that Jesus did, the, the message Jesus had. And here these men are doing the same things. They identified them with Jesus. They recognized them, though they were common. They, they shouldn't have known all the things they did. They shouldn't have been able to speak with boldness and authority like they did. But because of the indwelling Holy Spirit, they were able to do so. And so they recognized them as belonging to Jesus. This is the kind of thing John is talking about. These men were born of him. So they were practicing righteousness, and it was evident. Now, how important then is it that a person be born of him? How important is that? Very, yeah. <laughs> it's the most important thing. There is nothing more important than being born of him, than being born again. Nothing more important. Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It is the most important thing. And John's writing to them about, again, about hope. These are Christians, and they are being reminded of their hope in Christ. They're facing hardship in life, persecution. They're facing the, the lies of the Gnostics and the other people that are, um, you know, supposedly having information about Christ, um, and it's coming into direct conflict with the Word of God that they heard from the beginning, there's a bit of turmoil, and John is writing to the, speaking to all of this and reminding them, abide in the truth. Okay, the Christians, uh, they are being encouraged here to abide in Him, to remain steadfast, to not be deceived, to produce fruit, to practice righteousness, to have confidence, not because of themselves, but because of Christ. And um, I wish we could continue into chapter 3, but we're, uh, we're out of time, but we'll have to continue next time. This is all part of the same stream of thought from John. And we'll have to pick it up next time and continue on in this theme, of, this overarching theme of hope. Um, and we'll be looking at the amazing truth and really awe-inducing privilege and gift of being called children of God. Okay? Amazing. It's such an amazing thing that we, I'm looking forward to us being able to look at that next week, that we are called children of God. It's not something to, to gloss over or to skip over or to take lightly. And I want to remind you that the scriptures are written so that we can have hope. Okay? I want you to be reminded of that tonight. Romans 15, 4 to end. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. The scriptures are not just words that we come and read or things that we tell each other. It is the Word of God and intended to give us hope as Christians. That's John's intention for the people he's writing to, and that should be our what we receive from this as we go through this book is, is to continually have hope and be reminded of our hope in Christ. Um, so we'll look forward to next week and being able to, to talk about being called children of God. So let's close in prayer tonight. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for this night. We 
the time just goes by so fast. We thank you, Lord, for the truth. Your word is truth. And we thank you, Lord, for sanctifying us in the truth as Jesus prayed for. Uh, and Father, we thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. It, it's a dark world that we live in. It's a world full of temptation. We're being pulled to the world. And we're, we're told here by John not to love the world or the things in the world. Those things are passing away. Father, help us to abide in you, Lord. And we thank you for the promise of eternal life through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, and thank you, Father, for the gift. Though we were your enemies, Lord, through Christ, we are called children of God. We thank you and praise you for it. And we are joyful because of it. And we thank you for our hope in Jesus' name. Amen.